0: You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, your number one source for hunting and shooting in the great outdoors. Sit back and relax as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today. You will learn valuable tips and tricks that you can use on your next hunting trip into the field to make you a more successful hunter. Now here's your host, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is Episode 11, Gun Politics with David Hawker. If you don't know who David Hawker is, David Hawker was an Australian politician and was a Liberal member of the Australian House of Representatives from May 1983 until his retirement in July of 2010 where he represented the Division of Wannon in Victoria. He was also the Speaker for the House of Representatives from 2004 to 2008. He also chaired the Government Firearms Consultative Committee in 1996. Currently David also is on the Board of Governors for the Hart Morass. Before we get into my interview with David Hawker, uh, I just want to say, guys, this was a fantastic podcast I did with David. Uh, David certainly dropped a lot of knowledge uh, on the hunting and shooting and also gun politics, uh, which is mainly what this podcast is about. Uh, He certainly uh, unraveled a lot of stuff, especially around the pre- and post-1996 Port Arthur shootings. Uh, I I really enjoyed talking to David. It was quite... um, Especially very eventful, very eye-opening, and uh, David was pleasant enough to come on the show and uh, chat about uh, all things gun politics, especially in regards to uh, pump-action shotguns, semi-automatic shotguns, and also semi-automatic rifles. Uh, while they were why you know they were banned during that period, uh, what the reasons were behind the ban, and uh, you know listen to the podcast. You know, some things may make your head spin, may make you angry, may make you laugh. And certainly, David gave us a lot of knowledge uh, and insight into that period around that time. Uh, Before we get into the interview, uh, don't forget, guys, we're on Facebook page. Jump on the Facebook page. Uh, We're also on Twitter at AH AHpodcast. You can follow all our Twitter feeds from there. And if you want to send us an email, you want to sponsor the show, send in some products we can give away to our listeners, uh, you can send me an email at Podcast at gmail.com. So I know you guys want to get into this gun politics podcast. So without further ado, let's get into my interview with David Hawker.
1: Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist, and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast.
0: David Hawker, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for coming on, I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Jason, it's great to be with you.
0: So, I guess for listeners that don't know who you are, David, can you give us a rundown of, of you know, your personal history and um, you know, for people that may not know who you are?
1: Uh, yes, Jason. Well, my public life was I was the uh, member for the seat of Wannon in the Federal Parliament, which is a seat in the western part of Victoria, the southwest corner of Victoria. I was elected in 1983 and retired in 2010. Uh, I was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the 25th person to be Speaker since Federation uh, from 2004 until the change of government. Uh, and prior to that, I was managing a family farm, and probably most uh, importantly for this occasion, uh, I have been a long-time shooter and uh, certainly both with rifles and shotguns and a keen hunter and continue to uh, take every opportunity I can, which is probably more now than I used to have.
0: Uh, <laughs> no, absolutely. So, I mean, what, what, I guess what's your favourite type of game? What do you, you sort of like hunting?
1: Uh, well, first and foremost, I love duck shooting. I mean, I was brought up on it from a very young age and uh, continue to just love it because I think it's just so exciting, always something new, uh, and just the excitement of going out on a swamp uh, at dawn and the, just the feeling of sort of being there, part of nature. I mean, it really is quite remarkable. And, of course, it's always very challenging and never other are the conditions the same and the birds that come at you are always different. And, of course, most exciting nowadays is the fact that we've had all this rain and the wetlands are filled up and the ducks are breeding very rapidly.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, I'm from New South Wales, so we don't have a duck season up here. But when I do come down, I, uh, you know, I just, I, anyone, anyone that knows me knows, you know, knows I love wing shooting. Uh, it's one of my favourites, uh, uh, certainly. So you guys are lucky down there to still have a uh, duck season. So,
1: Well, yes, we are, but uh, we've worked hard to keep it. Um, maybe things are changing in New South Wales. I notice there's some uh, murmurs about what might happen. South Australia still has a season and of course Tasmania still has a season um, and I think that uh, now that the rains have come and the ducks are breeding very rapidly, uh, it's an opportunity to review this and I I would urge your listeners uh, to take heart from the fact that uh, the bird numbers are rapidly breeding up and there is a very strong case for harvesting on a sustainable
0: basis. Absolutely. So, David, you were the, the uh, chairman for the Board of Governors for the Hart Morass. Again, for people, can you tell our listeners say what that entails, if they were unaware of what that role is?
1: Oh Yes, I've been um, honoured to be asked to be the chairman of the Board of Governors for the Hart Morass. Now, the Hart Morass is a wetland. Uh, it's been purchased from uh, a private landholder, and it's something an initiative of the Field and Game Australia. And uh, most importantly, I think what it's all about is that shooters actually putting their money where their mouth is and doing something for conservation. And uh, as I say, it really is a most impressive project. Uh, it's coming up for its fifth anniversary. Uh, Field and Game, under the leadership of Russ Bate, have done a remarkable job. And the local members in the area have really made a huge voluntary contribution in recreating this wetland and restoring it. But as well, the Williamson Foundation have put up quite a lot of money, a charitable trust, uh, and also, very importantly, uh, through the Williamson Foundation and their connections, uh, schoolchildren are being encouraged to do projects on the wetland under the title of a wonderful program called Bug Blitz. I'm so excited about this because I see it uh, as the conservationists are the hunters and I've always believed very strongly. In fact, I've practised and on our own uh, farm, uh, real conservation, and uh, I think that uh, there's overwhelming evidence to show that uh, the real conservationists in the world are, in fact, the hunters. And uh, In fact, there's a wonderful quote um, from uh, Sir David Bellamy, Professor Bellamy, uh, who said that um, while he's not a shooter and not a hunter, without hunters um, and without other people who are keen to go out and uh, fishing, um, the future for the environment would be catastrophic. So I think there's a very powerful case there, and that's the message that uh, through the heart morass, uh, we're trying to get to the wider community, but uh, I know there are many other examples of this, and I really encourage people to speak up on it.
0: No, absolutely. Sounds like you guys are doing a, doing a good thing there. Uh, so, David, you chaired the uh, Government uh, Firearms consultative Committee in 1996, can you tell us you know, what that entailed and what your role was, say, during that period?
1: Well, as you might recall, that uh, in 1996 we had that absolute tragedy in Port Arthur uh, where this madman went out and shot so many innocent people. And there was a huge public reaction at the time. And not surprisingly, I mean, people felt betrayed and, uh, of course, family were devastated when you know, their loved ones had been shot quite innocently. And there was a very strong reaction in the community saying something had to be done. Now, the government decided that uh, they were going to act but given that there were quite a few people who had a keen interest in ensuring that um, private ownership of firearms should continue, uh, the Prime Minister, uh, John Howard, appointed a committee which I was asked to chair to look into all aspects of this to see how we could try and keep the balance right. At the same time, those who had a legitimate reason to continue to own and use a firearm should not be stamped on them. Uh, look, I found that a, a very big challenge in some ways, but a, quite a rewarding one in, in other ways. But most importantly, I think um, from that, uh, we still see private ownership of firearms in Australia and we will continue to see it.
0: Yeah. So, what was uh, what would you say the atmosphere was like during that period? Say, pre and post 1996, uh, for the government firearms committee was you know was the recommend, recommendations made by the committee taken on board by the government?
1: Well, I think it gave the government and uh, the time to sort of just look at things in a, in, a, in a considered way and not to act suddenly or drastically and to realise that uh, there are a lot of people in the community, uh, whether it be um, sporting shooters who want to go out and uh, well hunt, or whether it be people who want to go and um, shoot on the ranges or you know, shoot at gun clubs, uh, as well as, of course, those who have a legitimate reason as a tool of trade, such as farmers and then firearms, and those who go out and uh, try and control vermin. And when you bring all those different groups into the picture, Obviously, um, there had to be some recognition and so, look, it wasn't easy. I mean, you had both, uh, well, most of the people from uh, the metropolitan areas very anti-guns and that's been a growing trend in Australia. You also had both government and opposition agreeing that something more had to be done. So we were working fairly hard to try and say, well, yeah, that's okay, but don't overlook the interests of legitimate shooters. And you can recall there were a number of meetings and I certainly remember addressing one and uh, a lot of shooters were pretty hostile about it and I could understand I was not unsympathetic because I had the hand in a couple of guns. The point is that um, I think we got through it and I think we're in a better position now uh, because in some states the laws were too lax, there's no question about it, and that's why we had that disaster at Port Arthur. Port Arthur. But look, it's important that you know, we continue to work uh through our shooting organisations to keep the pressure on governments to recognise the legitimate role of owning private ownership of firearms while at the same time ensuring that uh, we have safe use of them.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, yeah, so are, are the details of, say, what happened during that uh, 1996, you know, when the gun laws were overhauled, uh, is this information about how they went about it, like, available to the general public, say, under a freedom of information, or does the government sort of not want to, you know, give that information out, or are they actually wanting to remain transparent during that process?
1: Well, I think if you go back to the Hansard uh, in the debates that were held at the time, most information is already on the public record. The follow-up from it, yes, there was the gun buyback um, and there was a, an additional tax, if you like, or charge put on the Medicare levy to pay for that. Um, it probably took a lot of um, firearms out of the community that were just lying on top of cupboards and really weren't. people didn't know what they were doing to come do with them. Um, yes, it upset people as well. I mean, I had to hand in an old Browning A5, which I was rather upset about, but and that was one of the areas that we worked quite hard to have the um, proposed laws changed, um, which I can give you a bit more detail on that. With, as you know, with the semi-automatic shotguns in particular, a lot of people, there were a lot of them around, they'd been around for a long time, and uh, you know people had been handing them on from one generation to the next, and they wanted to hang on to them. The problem arose, of course, is that... Um, they got lumped in with semi-automatic rifles, and that was the real issue. And uh, my concern, I suppose, goes back to the fact that these semi-automatic military rifles were allowed into the community, and they should never have been allowed in the first place. There was no place for them, really. And they were the ones that uh, had the potential to be really lethal in terms of uh, you know, some mad idiot going out and shooting people. So, unfortunately, the semi-automatic shotguns it's got lumped into that. We did try to see if you could modify the magazine on these uh, shotguns down to a two-shot, and you might remember there was proposals to crimp them and or block them off. Um, we got an agreement that if we could show that uh, the crimping would work, uh, then that might be accepted. Unfortunately, the, we had a, um, a shotgun that had the crimping on the barrel, uh, on the magazine, I mean, And the the test was then put to uh, our friends in the army at Maribyrnong to say, well, can you reverse this process? And I remember going to the workshop and watching in horror, actually, because they virtually wrecked the gun, but they did show that you could reverse the crimping and convert it back to a five-shot. You know, anyone who valued their firearm would hate to see what they did, but it did work. So we lost that argument, and that's why, unfortunately, the uh, semi-automatic shotguns got... um, included in the buyback
0: yeah i mean it's a bit of a shame isn't it what what was it about i mean auto loading i mean even pump pump action shotguns is it is it purely the magazine capacity or is it what's the part people are sort of actually afraid of i mean like i mean martin Bron obviously used a semi-automatic as far as i'm aware like an ar-15 type variant um what which part of it is it they actually don't like is it just purely the magazine capacity and the the ease of sort of reloading? I mean, what what, what actually was it at, at that time?
1: Unfortunately, it was all about the politics at the time. Uh, it wasn't so much the guns. The fact is that um, a lot of people who were very anti-guns immediately tried to uh, narrow down the detail and had the semi-automatic shotguns included in that announcement, where it was, it was a really broad announcement originally. Uh, we were caught with that. We couldn't get it changed because the at the heat of the time, uh, people wouldn't accept it. Now, of course, as you know, C-grade licences we have in Victoria are now becoming more widespread, and you can buy semi-automatic shotguns with a C-grade licence, and if you can show a reason to have one, uh, you'll get one. And uh, there's not the same stigma that was there at the time, Uh, so I suppose um, Martin Bryant did us a grave disservice in one way, but in another way, I think the fact that We now have a set of laws that everyone is fairly comfortable with, provided we remain vigilant on it. Uh, I think you can see that it can accommodate even the five-shot, semi-auto shotguns.
0: Yeah, I think the main thing, I guess, you know, people uh, were upset about during the time, only from people that I speak to, um, listeners, forum members, is that, like, why were law-abiding citizens punished for something a criminal... Uh, a person did that was a criminal act, if, if I'm actually saying that correctly. Um, like, wh- wh- Why was the greater community of, of law-abiding citizens punished for something that you know uh, was a criminal act? Does that make sense?
1: Well, it was worse than a criminal act. I mean, it was just dreadful what he did. Absolutely. And there was a public reaction, you might say, uh, I think an understandable public reaction. And, yeah, I, I, I sympathise with what you're saying, the law-abiding citizens who felt very unhappy. I mean, I had lots and lots of friends who were, Oh, less than friendly, shall we say, over this, when they saw what I was trying to say or you know steer a course through the middle, which didn't really please them at all. But um, I just think that we've moved on from there. You are able to have a shotgun. You're able to have a rifle, including a centerfire. Um, If you want to go further, well, you've got to meet a higher standard. And I'm not sure that that's such a problem because genuine reasons to go to a C grade or something more um, do allow you to still have the firearms that you want, but only if you have a reason to have want them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still um, a year and a half ago, I'm a C class license, and I've got a uh, Browning, uh, one of the new auto loading Maxes that I actually use on sporting clays. So. I mean, I guess, you know, I guess to say people say they're not available, I think is a bit of an overstatement too. I mean, I go down to the range and I was there last weekend and a few of the, about four or five of the older fellas have bought a couple of new Berettas, uh, Eurekas. I think there was a 10 Keys or I think it's called if I'm getting the name correct. So I guess, I guess people to say they're not around is a bit of an oversight too. People think the laws have changed, but I mean, I get down to the clay target range. and You still see quite a number floating around.
1: People who have, particularly older people who may have you know, a weak shoulder or something, uh, if they want a, a shotgun that has less recoil, then they have a legitimate reason to get go to a C-class license and get a semi-auto. So um, I think common sense is sort of coming back in. Um, the days of sort of fairly open ownership of farms, have, I think, have gone, and the community is not going to accept us going back to that. I mean, we've moved on from there. But... With responsible use of firearms and the incredible emphasis on safety that all the gun clubs put, um, and you know, and particularly in uh, teaching young people how to use a firearm, I mean, I think we're we're well placed to see the continuing ownership of firearms on a responsible basis, and that's what it should be. We all want that.
0: Your honest professional opinion: Would you ever think? I mean, I'm only 30 years old, but I mean, in my lifetime or even my kids' lifetime, do you reckon we'll ever see those laws change that will allow us to have, you know, like the at least, you know, at least maybe auto-loading shotguns or pump shotguns again, say on a Category B license? Or do you think, at least in the next, you know, maybe 50, 100 years, it's just not going to happen? Well,
1: that's always again speculating about the future is always a little bit dangerous. But what I could say is that I think if you've got a legitimate reason for wanting a, a semi-auto or a pump action, uh, then you'll be, able, you'll be accommodated, you'll be able to get one, uh, but you'll have to you know, go through the proper licensing process. Uh, that's not going to change, but what we have to make sure is that um, people who can be seen to be, are going to be responsible, should be able to qualify or, you know, and get the license. Equally, there are a few people in the community we don't want to have those sort of guns, and I think you know, it's going to be expected of governments, whatever their colour, that they're going to say no to some people if if they're not legitimate. And uh, I think that probably is the sort of balance we want.
0: I was more sort of considering like you know say for like you know if you got like duck season down in Melbourne where if you know the average A and B recreational hunter wanted to you know like they want to sit in a blind and maybe using you know a, a, a semi-automatic shotgun or pump action. I was talking more about those. Maybe not say you know vertebrae pest control like say on a on a, on land, but I was more talking just say for the average you know hunter that wants to get out there you know, he loves shooting ducks and, you know, maybe he doesn't want to shoot the under and over. I'm just, I'm, I was always wondering maybe in my lifetime that would ever change, that's all.
1: Well, I mean, he, he can probably still use the semi-auto now, but he ought to just restrict himself to two shots. Um, and in some ways, you know, and having used a semi-auto, I mean, I hope I'm talking from both sides on this, um, it makes you concentrate a bit more if you've got two shots and only two shots before you reload. And uh, I don't see it as sort of, you know, a, a do or die issue, but um, maybe, maybe in the future it will change, and uh, who knows? But the important thing is, uh, and this would be probably leads into another theme you want um, proper representation of shooters' interests is critical, and uh, that's why I always encourage people to join one of the shooting organizations, whether it be field and game sporting shooters or one of the others, uh, because they do work very hard on behalf of shooters. Uh, to actively lobby with government and to counter some of the nonsense that comes out of the uh, minority groups who just you know anti
0: everything. <laughs> yeah, I guess like the Greens would be one of them. I'm guessing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so, what do you think the Howard uh, governments say? Do you think they reacted strongly to the events of Port Arthur? I mean, was it more public outcry, or was it, and also including the media pressure on that, which is you know. Result in the gun laws we have today.
1: I think it was a combination of all those things. There was certainly a lot of public outcry and un- quite understandably particularly for people in Victoria and Tasmania who are directly affected Yes, the media jumped on it Yes um, other groups who saw this as a chance to sort of uh, take the anti-gun stand. They jumped on it, but I don't think they were the major players um, and It was a time in the political scene where both the government and the opposition agreed that something should be done. So this is where we ended up. Having said that, I think we are now in a much more um, sensible era where people are listening to the arguments rather than the emotions. uh, And that's where we've got to keep it. And if we've got a good argument to put forward, then let's do it. And uh, legitimate and uh, valid and very strong argument continuing private ownership of firearms
0: yeah uh, do you think I mean again your honest opinion do you think uh, obviously the, the the change in laws was to remove certain guns from from the public do you think you know the change of laws has reduced firearm crime by taking I guess well hopefully not a removing you know uh, you know unlicensed and uh, illegal guns off the street but also taking them off licensed shooters taking their firearms off them as well
1: well I think there's quite a few points in that question Um, The first thing is that most use of firearms um, uh, by criminals, um, they're not even registered, nor are the criminals registered, so they're illegal from the start. Whether that's changed or not is debatable. What I think you can show, and the Australian Institute of Criminology have done some very good work on this, is the number of homicides with firearms has been dropping steadily. It was dropping before 1996, and it has continued to drop so, yeah, you know, almost independently of uh, any change of firearm ownership. And, I mean, that's got to be a good thing. Likewise, um, the suicide with firearms has dropped. Uh, and, again, I'm not saying that uh, what you can directly relate that to, but the Institute of Criminology, again, can show you the figures. Uh, and, again, that's a good thing. And uh, there probably were occasions when people had... Uh, it was too easy to grab a gun and sort of do yourself in. Whereas uh, if they've got to be properly locked up and safe, uh, safe and so on, then hopefully people will cool down before they do something totally rash.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And the funny thing is, so I guess with the law change, especially for me knowing more about New South Wales, um, and obviously the change in, you know, going down to your range and being able to try out, you know, shooting before you get your license, I mean, as far as I'm aware, as far as the... Uh, from things I've heard in the media whether that's true or not I can't validate that but there's more There's more firearms among shooters now than there's ever been so I guess that's quite an interesting fact about uh, you know as you said um, you know suicides you know I guess gun related crime going I guess down it's quite interesting how there's more there's more licensed firearms now yet you know the I guess things that are going wrong is, is, is reducing so it's quite an interesting fact there
1: well I think um, I don't know the exact statistics on all that but um what you're suggesting I think is a very um you know, it's a real tick, a real plus for shooters because they've clearly been more responsible. Uh and the fact that people probably are owning more firearms than they used to could be a product of a number of reasons. But uh the thing is that um increased firearm ownership if that's what's happening isn't being shown to um shown up in uh statistics of crime and uh, yeah, you know, that that is, uh, I think, a real plus, and uh, it shows that um, maybe um, if we keep the balance right on the laws, then we can continue to see this in, in, improvement in uh, the statistics.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, what was, uh, David? What was the? I mean, what was the government trying to achieve by by cracking down on the law-abiding citizens after, say, '96, when the abuse of firearms came from certain criminal elements and not sporting shooters? Was it obviously to stop a re- reoccurrence at what happened at Port Thutter?
1: I think the, um, well, obviously there was a reaction to what happened at Port Arthur and not surprising. I think everyone expected it. What it probably did do rather than, uh, first of all, it, a lot of firearms, as I said, were just lying around the top of cupboards and so on, got handed in or, or were brought back. Also, I think the fact is that some states had good firearms law, some had very slack firearms law. And those laws have now been changed. They're not all quite the same, but they are a lot more uniform than they used to be. And I think basically states that have been leading the way, and I know Victoria's laws better than others, so Victoria and South Australia, uh, they already had quite good laws in place, so they didn't really have to change much. By tightening that up, so for example, um, the 28-day rule on the first time, your first firearm purchase, so you couldn't just rush out and buy a gun in a rage, and use it the wrong way, uh, that, I think people accept that. Uh, the fact that uh, you know you have to go through and show a reason why you want to own a firearm, and that's not difficult if you joined you know, one of our shooting organizations. Uh, and likewise, uh, the fact that you, know, you have to go through a little bit of a character test, like, for example, um, is your wife scared of you? Uh, I know that's valid <laughs> things. If,
0: <you> know.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, you put all that together, probably we're, we're better off for it.
0: Yeah yeah no I just I like that one it was a good one. Um so David did the government consult the uh consultative committee on the category change and what I mean by that is why did they allow Pump rifles and lever-action shotguns and lever-action rifles to remain on a cat B. Yet they remove the semi-auto and the pump shotguns. I mean, there's a few. Obviously, we have a lot of uh, you know um, lever-action rifles, but we also have the you know like the IACs, the 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 five-shot IAC 1887. You can buy them in the 20-inch barrel and a coach gun. Why didn't they ever look at the shotgun for the lever-action shotgun? I mean, that can still hold if you put one in the shoot there as well. You can hold six in that, and still can shoot. Just as quick as a uh, semi-auto and a, and a uh, pump-action shotgun, if you know how to use it. I think
1: it's a lot about perceptions, and that's politics is often about perceptions. And if you mention the word automatic or semi-automatic, people's perceptions were quite different, particularly after what happened at Port Arthur. Then, if you tried to complicate it with things that they probably the general population didn't even understand, but they understood the word automatic because they'd seen so many movies, you know, with. Um, Sylvester or whoever, sort of... Exactly. ...firing off at great rate. Um, so they, that's what they associated it with. So, yeah, it's perceptions. That's what it's about.
0: Wow. It's so interesting how some things can just be hedged on something like that. It's, just, it's mind-boggling, isn't it?
1: Well, it is worrying, but it shows that at times there's a lot of ignorance in the community, not just on this, a lot of things. And um, if people don't counter those uh, perceptions... Uh, they can take hold, and it's very hard to change it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I go hunting a fair bit, and what I notice amongst friends and and people that know that I'm a shooter is that they assume that shooting is easy. This is the thing I find very hard. So I was like, I go to the range, I spend. You know, I've spent hours shooting clay targets and hours out in the field to become a better hunter. I mean, it's great to be able to shoot from, say, a bench rest or, you know, uh, shooting, hitting targets and paper. But when you go out in the field, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I guess everybody's done it. I've missed shots at... 40 or 50 metres I mean people assume it's so easy yet they see as you've just stated Arnold Schwarzenegger Sylvester Stallone Rambo popping off headshots at you know 3, 4, 500 metres thinking that's something that happens as a, like it's just a day-to-day occurrence I mean that's the part that's mind-boggling to me I mean a lot of people spend hours On their chosen sport uh, to 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 become good and to become competitive, and you know it's just the the perception is interesting that you know it's it's somehow they see these sniper movies and it's somehow easy, or I mean it's definitely not easy.
1: Oh no! Look, we certainly understand that. I think the one of the real pluses we have in Australia and have had for some years now is the fact that we have shooters who are winning gold medals at the Olympics. And that demonstrates there's a very high degree of skill there because we haven't always been able to do that, and it's damned hard. And this, and you know, we see it's as part of the divide. I call it the urban-rural divide. Uh, we see in the country, for example. I mean, I know in Western Victoria, you can pick up one of the local papers every few weeks, and there'll be a photograph on the sporting page of some young. And who's just won a medal or won a competition holding up a shotgun. And people in the country just say, well, of course, why wouldn't it be otherwise? But if it was a city, you'd find it pretty hard to get on one of the daily national papers the same sort of photo unless it's Russell Mark or Michael Diamond winning the gold and then they will probably get a photo. But uh, this is uh, part of the difficulty we have nowadays in our community is there is a big divide and people in the city mostly don't own firearms. Uh, they've formed an opinion, as we say, from what they've seen in films or on television, and they have a, a growing fear. And uh, it's a big change, because um, old friends of mine used to say when they did their national service back in the 50s, it was or cadets, school cadets, it was pretty common to just hop on a tram, I'm sorry, I'm a Victorian, I'm talking about trams, uh, with a 303 rifle, and no one would even blink. And... Uh, you know, time, if you did it now, of course, there would be an outcry, but it times have changed. And, uh, you know, we've just got to work within the framework we have now. And I think we can do it with a, there's a lot of good stories. And, um, you know, if we start on vermin and those sort of things and the good work that um, our representatives are doing through the shooting organizations, uh, there's a good story to tell. And we can counter a very, very small minority who make an awful lot of noise. And I sort of think of my dear old mother saying, you know, empty vessels make the most noise. And when I look at some of the anti-gun lobbyists, I think, yeah,
0: I know what she's talking about. <laughs> good old mum, good old mum. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when, the government, when the government was um, obviously talking to the of the Committee, how, how was the list of banned, say, versus legal firearms? How was that determined? Was it, as you said before, just anything auto was automatically banned or how did they, how did they come up with the uh, ban list?
1: Uh, well, as a combination of things. Yes, the perceptions about the terminology were, were played quite a role. Uh, unfortunately, the government department, Justice or Attorney Generals, had been pushing stronger firearm laws for a long time with the previous government uh, in particular. Uh, so they'd already got a list together. It had been sitting around in the, you know, if you remember the Yes Minister thing, it was all sitting in the. Uh, Draw and it was just waiting for another minister to come along, and it would be pulled out and see if this minister would accept it. So those lists have been prepared long, long before 1996. So um, yeah, that's where the list came from.
0: Do you think the long-term say aim for the government regarding at least current firearms laws is to maintain what we have now, say as of 2011, or do you still think there's a you know like a, a possibility that they may you know erode the very small remaining set of rights to possess firearms that we've got now?
1: I don't think governments are really looking to get involved either way, uh, by and large. I mean, there's a minority parties that you could say are. The real answer to that is that um, while governments understand that the shooters have, well, certainly have their own rights, and they are quite effective in lobbying. And your state, for example, there's currently I think one member of the state parliament in the Shooters Party. There have been two. Um, While the shooting organisations continue to lobby and Present their case in a rational way to government and opposition, always both sides. Uh, I don't think you'll see anything change, um, and, that, and I can see that growing. Because, to give an example, uh, in Victoria, each year the uh, again I quite field and game because I'm actually a patron of field and game, but I'm also a life member of sporting shooters, so I'd like to get involved with everyone. Um, Field and Game actually put on a politician's shoot once a year. No, it's not about shooting politicians. It's actually getting people who've probably never held a gun in their life to go out to the gun club and fire a shotgun. And they bring along... uh, Well, Russell Mark often comes along with his wife, Lauren, uh, and gives a bit of coaching. Uh, And they get people who've never held a gun before actually hitting targets, you know, clay targets. I mean, they mightn't be the hardest targets. That doesn't matter. The fact is they're hitting them and you ought to see the look on their face. They're absolutely thrilled. And this is what it's, this is what loving's all about. It's getting through to the people who don't know what's happening so that they're not scared. They're not worried about it. They're comfortable. And importantly, they know the people who are involved don't have two heads or something worse. They're just normal citizens like you and I.
0: Yeah, I, I had a, a good conversation with Rod Drew like on, on our last podcast for episode 10, and you know I did say I mean it's very rare I mean i mean I'm from sydney and i'm I'm fairly much you know into into firearms and shooting and clay targets hunting and it's i I don't think except for the the Michael Diamond Olympics or was it the Commonwealth Games I remember last sometime last year I think it was was it? yeah last year might have been the Commonwealth Games, and they had Michael Diamond on the t v you know with his shotgun and all and that's one of the only advertisements I've ever seen like uh, for shooting like I mean it's rare that I go into the city of Sydney and I see a billboard saying join this group join that group i've never except for that commonwealth games ad i think it was commonwealth games anyway i've never seen an ad on tv and i said wouldn't it be great if we just you know again obviously money would be a factor in this is you know to get like a a tv ad going i'm not sure who would fund it but you know it would be you know solicitors it would be nurses it would be police officers firemen desk workers train drivers you know on an on an ad you know say you know doing their certain job and then all of a sudden it cuts to the next part and they're pistol shooting they're clay target shooting they're out hunting and you know it'd be great to see an ad like that and people don't know what the provision of the ad is when they first start watching it then they see them shooting they think oh you know hey there's a you know a, a judge there's a you know a fireman he's shooting hey maybe it is okay for me to go and do that maybe yeah, you know, there isn't a stigma there. Maybe we should get out and try this shooting. I mean, there's not uh, I feel sometimes that, you know, like I'm not saying any any particular organisation because obviously it would take quite an expense, but you know, it would be great to see something like that on TV and get it in people's faces and get it out there and get it get it moving forward and maybe get more of people out there hunting and shooting, which would always be a great thing.
1: Look, I think you make a very valid point and yes, it's always a challenge to get the message across but i think there is one area that um we don't really work hard enough to exploit and that is control of feral animals now and and also excess native animals now for example in victoria the kangaroo population is exploding and the number of the roadkill everywhere i drive in the country nowadays the roadkill is just extraordinary and we're already seeing um you know the, i guess the panel beaters are loving it because their business is just exploding also but <laughs>
0: yeah. the
1: control of um, wild animals is, is an important role that shooters play and feral animals in particular, are, the numbers are growing and growing right across Australia, both in the, um, central Australia but also locally. But the one we certainly see a lot of in Victoria are foxes and foxes are extremely destructive when it comes to uh, the native fauna. I mean, they are just indiscriminate killers. And fox shooting is something that uh, the state government of Victoria have just brought back a bounty, which um, is great to see. Um, I have a personal view that uh, if we could get some of these fools in the extreme green groups to understand that the best thing we could do to control fox numbers is to make fox fur fashionable again. And once fox fur pelts became worth a decent amount of money, people would go out and hunt them. They wouldn't need a bounty to do it. Uh, and get the numbers down again because they really have exploded and they're doing an enormous amount of damage. So shooters really have a a very positive message to put forward and are beginning to be recognised by governments um, in terms of controlling these feral animals and overpopulation of some native species in some of the public lands.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I got a one of my good friends, he uh he loves hunting foxes just like I do. That's wing shooting is probably my number one, maybe maybe, but I love we love fox shooting. We love getting out there with our electronic callers, our tenor field whistles and love spotlighting. I just uh, love it's it's hard to find people that really love have, have a huge passion for fox shooting, but you know, I love it. I love seeing, you know, getting out there, putting my caller out, you know, playing some rabbit sounds and just watching the, especially when a fox comes in, how he reacts and they really are, as you said, they really are an indiscriminate killer. And they, they really are a predator and they're really... Oh I just i mean obviously, I like shooting them, I like doing my bit you know for myself and the community and the farmers that I'm you know working for, but it really is it really is one of the one of the better better forms of hunting in my opinion. You get the deer hunters and you get the goat hunters, they love all that but which 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 I enjoy too, but just the foxes when they come into a call and they try and look out, they're using every sense you know vision smell, they're coming from behind trees in between creeks it's ah oh, it's absolutely magic
1: might make a Wonderful documentary that hopefully some of the television stations might take some interest in, because just to show what a fox really can do and how difficult it is to hunt it, but most importantly that uh, the damage it does to the native fauna, and also coming back to the point about the fox pelts, um you talked to some of the old timers when fox pelts worth a decent amount of a decent dollar, shall we say, they could earn more money hunting foxes in a week than they could from their daytime job so they had a real incentive to go and get them so yeah there's a positive story there we've got to learn to exploit it and we shouldn't be backward in telling people about it we don't want to be defensive we've got to get out there on the front foot
0: Absolutely. So, um, you know, when you when you were part of the Conserve Committee, while firearms were, say, being taken away from, you know, the law-abiding citizen, was the government, Did they, was there any talk about uh, removing the multitude of illegal firearms, you know, say to, you know, obviously organised criminal groups? Was there any talk in that and removing those firearms outside the, out of the community?
1: Well, look, look, that's always an issue for every government and the criminal groups, you know, we all want to try and control them and reduce their numbers as much as possible. Um that really does come under the responsibility of the police forces, and yeah, I mean they—I know they work pretty hard at it, but um, some of the criminals are pretty smart too, and uh, it's something that is—it's uh, an ongoing issue for the community. And um, we weren't really looking at it. To, I mean, the short answer is no, we weren't, because the, those—they're already criminals. They're already breaking the law, and the law's there to look after them. So if the laws are in place. It's a matter of making sure they work as well as we can. Can make them
0: so, David. Um, obviously, that during the Howard government they wanted uniform gun laws Australia-wide. Um, you know, do you reckon that's something that would would help. Obviously, to this day that hasn't happened. Uh, but is that something that should happen, or do you think it's better to be managed at a state level?
1: I oh, look, I think it's important that we have gun laws that are reasonably uniform. Um, the fact is that the states still have the responsibility under the Constitution to for most of these laws, and that will continue. Uh, but nonetheless. If uh, the the reasonably uniform and the attorneys general that's our justice people, uh, ministers, they meet twice a year. I'm sure that um, licensing of guns comes up regularly at their meetings um, and they do consider what ways they might do to streamline this. We we are a federation and the states are part of a federation and will continue to be part of a federation and therefore they can make laws that uh, suit their own state
0: yeah absolutely um you know say during that um time you were a part of the you know, Constitutive committee ninety ninety six was it was it tough to be part of the committee um was it you know was the committee under strict scrutiny like especially after ninety six or and 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 the obviously the recommendations you you were giving out were they adhered to or was it purely just i mean you know, i mean i guess I'd put it was it the- po- politics of the politics and they were just consulting you but they were never ever going to take on the recommendations.
1: Well, I suppose if I was to sort of divulge a bit about the committee, um, we were working quite well, and we were actually making progress on a few things. That um, because we were concerned that some of the laws would be too tough, we were going quite well until, unfortunately, one member of the committee um, divulged financial bar standards, if you like, uh, and these were then the prime minister was confronted with this by a journalist uh, without warning uh, and not surprisingly he wasn't very happy about that and I think that did make it a bit more difficult for us to continue to work and gain ground with him but uh, that was because of one member of the committee which I didn't know was going to happen but it, I was confronted and um, let's say we had a, one very, very unhappy Prime Minister and so our progress slowed down a bit.
0: Yeah, just, I, I can imagine it was a very interesting time for you, that's for sure.
1: Oh, it was, but, um, look, yeah, great experience. And, I, as I say, I think there's, there are some positives that have come out of it, and clearly our uh, shooting organisations are much stronger now than they were, and I can only reiterate the point that people should get involved. Um, if you want to maintain something in the current world, if you've got a strong case and a, and a, a good case, which I think shooters do have for legitimate owners, private ownership of firearms, then keep Supporting your lobby groups uh, and keep you know speaking out and don't be defensive and worst of all don't sort of um, pretend it's not going to change because it will change if you don't stand up for
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. Some people say, and I've heard say, you know, we should be, you know, trying to hold on to what we've got now, but I always say, you know, if we, if we do, I mean, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, time will tell. But I say we always should be trying to go for more. I mean, I think sitting on our hands and trying to battle for what we've already got will, you know, will inevitably be eroded. That's just, I mean, whether my opinion's right or wrong, I guess we'll find out in 10, 20, 30 years. But I always say we always should be fighting for more. We always should, not fighting, but we always should be, you know, lobbying for more on behalf of shooters. I just I mean, that's my opinion. Well,
1: I think we come back to a couple of points I've already mentioned. First of all is shooters and their role in conservation, one that uh, ought to be publicised as much as possible. And the fact is that shooters worldwide can point to a very, very good record of work in conservation, far greater than the noisy, empty vessels that go on and on about, you know, we've got to stop this, ban that, something else who never really do anything other than ask government to put their hand, you know, their hand in someone else's pocket to pay for it. Shooters do it themselves. So that's a great story. And the other thing is of course the control of feral animals. I mean shooters do have and will continue to have a very important part to play there and that's not going to change and um, you know that's the laws of nature. So those are the sort of stories that we've got to keep pushing um with those sort of stories, I mean, the case will stand... It's a very strong case and one that will continue to be heard.
0: Absolutely. All right, we've got a couple of questions. I've got two questions from uh, that I've fielded from listeners. Now, I guess this one's called... Uh, I know his forum name is Pre-Ban Fan. So um, <laughs> <laughs> why was the 22 rimfire included in the ban? Obviously, I guess he's talking about 22 semi-auto rimfire when there was no evidence they've ever been used in any attacks or shootings.
1: Well, I think the 22 got lumped in there, unfortunately, uh, because of the word semi auto. Um, but having said that, I mean, as an owner of 22, and I suppose I started shooting the 22 at a fairly young age, um, I, the 22 is not going to disappear. I guess the thing is that um, you're just going to have to be accurate with each shot you use because you're not going to be able to pull the trigger that fast. And uh, I guess that, to me, with a rifle, that's what it's all about you know, getting that shot off accurately. And yes, you're going to have a second one if you can move the bolt or quickly, um, but you're not going to have that semi-auto. But look, that's the, the fact is that we still have 22s and we'll always have 22s and they play a very important role, you know, whether it's getting rid of rabbits or a little vermin.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I've picked one of his questions. He's actually going to win himself a, a DVD, uh, David. It's a fishing DVD, courtesy of downriggershop.com.au, so you can check him out for your, your fishing okay. needs. So he's he's won himself a DVD pre band fan. I'll get his details Good and I'll send that out to him. So I've got another one. Uh, Oz Templar, he said, why does the government want a disarm, disarmed and defenseless population of citizens instead of a nation of protected citizens?
1: Well, I think we come back to what I was saying about responsible ownership of firearms should be under a proper licensing program. It will continue we will not be disarmed um and but we will not allow i don't think any government's going to accept that ownership of firearms shouldn't carry some responsibilities and uh, you know the fact is we have a very urbanized population nowadays and uh, they will not feel comfortable unless they know that um, firearm ownership is uh takes with a and quite a degree of responsibility and so it's not a question of just rights, it's a question of responsibilities and that's, I believe, as it ought to be and um, uh, the firearm owner, then you will continue to own firearms and um, I expect to. I have uh, sons who are keen shooters and uh, I certainly try and uh, encourage them, you know, most importantly about safety and about being responsible, uh, which they are and uh, I hope that uh, their opportunities will continue for the rest of their life.
0: No, absolutely. I hope they do too. So a couple of questions just to sort of uh, finish off, David. I mean, you said you like hunting before, you love duck hunting. What's, what's one of your favourite guns you got? You're more of a shotgun guy? You're more of a rifle, deer guy? Or what, what's your, what, what have you got there? What's one of your favourite guns you love shooting?
1: Well, I think the one that, um, yeah, I've got a few shotguns and a few rifles, but um, probably the one I've grown most fond of recently is a lovely little B2C Browning. Um, terrific weight, terrific balance. Uh, and it, even though it may only have 28 inch barrels, it's pretty good at pulling them down at a fair range. And uh, I think, to me, that's uh, the sort of thing I really enjoy using.
0: I guess the second last question is that how important is, as we were talking about before, say to join organisations like the SAA, Field and Game Australia, or the deer hunting organisations? How, how do you think that will is it important to join those clubs? Do you think that will affect, say, laws, say, and politics in Australia? And does that money go to Um, I guess, the the future of, you know, being able to hunt and shoot and, do sporting shooting events in Australia?
1: Well, I think the the short answer is yes, 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 and yes. Um, I would say it's essential. Why not join an organisation which sort of looks after your interests, which has done the sort of homework, has got the confidence of governments and oppositions to say, look, you know, we have responsible members. And we want to continue, and if you look at what happens overseas, for example in um, in, in Britain with the b a s c uh you know they have a very powerful organisation there it's um well resourced, most importantly uh it gives the facts and figures so that when the argument starts, you can always back it up and uh, you know I think these are the sort of things that we want to see in Australia, just our organisations getting uh continuing to be strongly supported and to continue having the respect of governments of the day. And uh, some of the individuals we have who work worked for us, I think, have done an absolutely outstanding job, mostly in a voluntary uh, capacity. And uh, I take my hat off to them, and I just hope that we'll continue to see people prepared to stand up for the rights of those who wish to use firearms.
0: All right, David. Tradition of my show is to to finish off is to... Uh, tell us a story, maybe a hunting trip, personal accomplishment, something that stands out in your mind uh, you know, throughout your life that you would, you know, you would say, you know, sticks in your mind. So a hunting story, maybe you know, you you know, you had a good day on the ducks or something, or maybe even a, you know something during your days uh, in the parliament. What? Just tell us a story, maybe we can, you know, to to, you know, to tell our listeners before we finish off.
1: Oh, that's a tough question. Um, look, I've had many wonderful experiences, but I think. The sort of thing I really enjoyed was um, going up to shoots uh, in the southeast of South Australia where you'd travel up the night before, camp out, be a wonderful barbecue, and um, if I say it was a water valley, some people will know what I'm talking about. Um, yep. where there was a terrific um, rapport there with the people. We were given a barbecue of, of deer. Um, everyone enjoyed themselves camping out, and then the next morning... We went out and uh, I recall this particular shoot. There were over 500 shooters there. And when we had the divide at the end of it, there were over 4,000 ducks in one pile. And I've never seen anything like it before and maybe I'll never see it again. But uh, it was just an incredible experience. And uh, it just said, that's what it was all about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did you, did you end up getting some of them or were you were you hunting at that time? or?
1: Oh yes, I was hunting at that time. And um, of course, going on from there, it's a fact that just... The other story, I suppose, if I could just say, having three sons, all of whom probably can shoot better than the old man, um, (laughs) to be able to to go out with them. uh, Yeah, I mean, what a wonderful experience, you know, to the next generation. And uh, they're all keen, responsible, very understanding of the importance of safety, uh, but at the same time, um, really enjoying it. And, uh, you know, I think what that really shows is that, you know, this is part of uh, human nature, that yeah, you know, we were we've been hunters for thousands of years, and we're not about to stop. And um, anyone who tries to suppress that, well, they can do that if they want to themselves, but don't try and stop all of us.
0: Absolutely, as as Roy Drew said, sometimes these you know the minority parties, the Greens, these anti's, you know, we've got to, You know, they expect us to be as equally as accepted of, of what they want to do, but they're not. They're not accepting at all of what we want to do. So that's where the disconnect is, I guess. Sometimes, well, it
1: is a disconnect, and. Um they're so busy trying to use ways of um, imposing their point of view, which is very much a minority point of view, uh, uh, on the majority. And uh, that's why we've got to be well-organized uh, to counter all their arguments. And we can do it because we've got a very strong case, and we'll continue to have a strong case. And I think, hopefully, we'll continue to have people prepared to stand up like those who have a, up to date, including yourself.
0: Absolutely. So what is it? if people want to get involved, can they? Can people get involved in the the heart morass? Is, that, is, it, is there public involvement in that, or is that just... How can people get involved if they want to or is that even a possibility or, or is it joining one of their clubs like Field and Game or is that how they can, is that how they can con- contribute or what can they do?
1: Well, all of that. I mean, look, there are many people involved in this. Uh, government organisations are certainly actively involved as well. Um, as I mentioned, uh, some of our young school kids are getting uh, doing projects out there anywhere near sale and they're willing to do a bit of work. I mean, there's a lot of projects there that they've got or we've got Uh, and uh, i'd certainly encourage you to get involved in every way you can and uh, but the and of course to talk about it because it's a great story and this is as i say this is all about hunters showing that we are the real conservationists and let's keep talking about it
0: all right david thanks for coming on the show you've dropped a lot of knowledge on our listeners today and um uh it's been fantastic uh your i guess experience you know during that period and what you've shared tonight um with not only myself but the listeners i think it's going to be you know very valuable people are going to get a lot out of it the listeners sent me a lot of questions you've you know answered them great and um you know i appreciate you know you, you taking the time out of your day to you know to talk to me and um hopefully you know i can pass on you know hunting and shooting to my children one day and it seems you've done the same and uh Everyone should get out there, be safe, do the right thing, and um, uh, you know, t- take uh, hunting and shooting forward. And um, don't be afraid to say you're a hunter shooter. So thanks for coming on, and I really appreciate your, your our time. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks, Jason. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, please keep up the good work.
0: You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, brought to you by AussieUsedGuns.com.au the premier classifieds of new and used firearm sales. Thanks for listening. See you next time.